Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together this day in this season of Easter, this time of the resurrection, Lord. We give you thanks for that. We thank you, Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to your disciples in so many ways as bodily having risen. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we might put fully our trust in you through Jesus Christ, our advocate. Amen. It struck me today as we were singing the uh, song of praise, this is the feast that um, if you ever wondered where those words came from, it comes from today's Revelation passage. Did you see that uh, we're singing along with all those around the heavenly throne in Revelation, looking forward to that, a foretaste of our future. Um, as we are going through Eastertide, the season of Easter, we're taking a break from Luke's gospel. We've been going through Luke all year, and we're going to John's gospel as we do every year because we're looking at the events of the resurrection, and today we continue on that path. So if you would, open up with me to John chapter 21 in your Bibles. Um, or you can look at it on your insert if you don't have a Bible with you. And let's look at what's going on. We're told that this is the third appearance of Christ to his disciples. And just to refresh your memory, um, of course, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and then Jesus appears to the disciples minus Thomas, and then Jesus appears to the disciples plus Thomas, and then we have today's reading. And in today's reading, we see three things primarily. We see, number one, John, the gospeler, once again showing us that Jesus has risen. He's truly risen bodily. Number two, we see the abundance of life that comes with the resurrection. Number three, we see Jesus' restoration beginning of all things, but particularly with the disciples today. So we see Jesus bodily raised. We see the abundance of life that comes with that. We see Jesus' restoration that comes with that. So as we open this passage here, we read... From chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So who's with who's going who is at the Sea of Tiberias? Well, let's take a look. Simon Peter, so that's Simon also called Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. Who are they? James and John. James and John, and two others who uh, we don't get their names here, but we know that there's this group of disciples. Look at verse 3. 
Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Now remember, why are they going fishing? This isn't just for pleasure, right? This is their occupation, right? So they've returned home and they're going out to fish. And if you remember from our sermon back in Luke chapter 5 earlier this year, when do they fish? At night. Why do they fish at night? Because the fish can't see the nets. Right. They use linen nets, and the linen nets cast shadows. And during the day, the sunlight shining through the nets makes it really obvious to the fish And so they're out fishing at night. They're working. This is not a time of leisure, right? This should sound familiar to you, again, from Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles with me, turn back to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, this is one of those things where you kind of need to open a concordance or some Bible dictionary to see what's going on here. The, The lake of Gennesaret is also the Sea of Tiberias, and it's also part of the Sea of Galilee, okay? So there's a connection going on here that John is setting up for us. This is not a new place post-resurrection that the disciples are at. It's connected back here to Luke chapter 5. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in one other boat to come help with them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Does that sound familiar to today's gospel? What's Jesus doing? What's Jesus doing? Why is he appearing to these disciples in the same way that he appears back in Luke 5? That's the question that John wants you to ask, you see, by giving you the context here. What's Jesus up to post-resurrection? Well, let's keep going back with John, chapter 21, verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That the disciple whom, 
that the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter had heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. The Greek word here that Jesus uses to address them at the break of day, which is translated children here, is not really a good translation. The Greek word is actually pardia, which means, hey guys, or you know, in the English, lads. It's this idea of familiarity, this idea of friendship. And so Jesus is on the shore as the dawn is breaking, yelling out to them, saying, hey guys, have you caught anything? If you wanted to put it in our modern vernacular. And the answer, of course, is no. And then he gives them those instructions. And it should have seemed like deja vu to them. All of a sudden it did because the light bulbs start going off, right? They start thinking to themselves, we've been here before. We've seen this before. The fishermen fished and caught nothing. And someone called and they caught everything. Look at verse 7. John says to Peter, because John's the beloved one, it is the Lord. And how does Peter respond? He jumps in and he swims a hundred yards after putting his clothes on, right? Jumps in and he swims a hundred yards to be with Jesus. What does Jesus do next? What's Jesus do next? Yeah, he feeds them breakfast. And he didn't let the nets nets break. (laughs) Yeah, he he, he didn't let the nets break, and he he feeds them. I don't think they broke last time either. They were almost breaking, right? I can't remember. I just read it. But but yeah, either way, he feeds them breakfast, right? So what are we to make of this? Well, it comes to that second point, that Jesus, number one, has been bodily resurrected, but number two, Jesus brings with him an abundance of life. He brings with him an abundance of life. Look at verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Let's stop there for a moment. Somebody wrote to me this week and asked, what's the significance of 153 fish? Now, scholars have asked and thought about this for, you know, some 2,000 years. And the answer is, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know. There have been all sorts of hypotheses, and you can do all sort of mathematical gymnastics and ask why are there 153 fish. But the best answer that I could come up with was, uh, from reading, was that because these are commercial fishermen, they always count their fish because their fish are to be taken to market and sold, and they'd have to divide them between the, the, the fishermen themselves. So 
Maybe that's why. Maybe there's some theological thing that's been hidden from, for us some 2,000 years later. But Yeah, and people have made those, people have made those ideas that it has to do with prime numbers and the number for God and prophecies, but we'll just leave that for what it is because there's nothing conclusive on it. So suffice it to say, it's a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. And it's an abundance of life. Notice that Jesus here is demonstrating that he's fully man. How is he demonstrating he's fully man? With the disciples. He knows they're hungry. He's hungry, yeah. <laughs> yep. He's hungry, right? He's being as a Jewish father, feeding his family, right? What, what is he... But, but don't miss the obvious. What's he doing with them? He's eating. Absolutely, he's eating. Does a ghost eat? Does a spirit eat? No. Jesus eats. He's bodily resurrected. Notice also he's demonstrating here that as the risen Christ, he's fully God. How does he demonstrate that? Remember, think back to the Luke passage in the sermon from there. <laughs> he has spider senses to where the fish are. Yeah, I mean, this is the ultimate fish finder, right? You know? Boy, if we could only just have him on your boat every time. Right? You throw your nuts on the other side. And it's miraculous because they're catching it during the day, remember. So that by itself is a miracle. Jesus is here once again showing that he is not just fully man, but he's fully God. He has command of the wind and the waves and the fish themselves. Do you see that? Don't miss that point. Don't miss that point. He brings abundance. It's also a fulfillment of prophecy. Now hang with me because this is a little esoteric. Right? But some of those of you that are more familiar with the Old Testament will appreciate this. So, looking back into the Old Testament, St. Jerome, translator of the Bible in the 300s, ties this passage with a passage in Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel chapter 47, if you want to make a note of it and look at it yourself, because I won't address all of it. But in Ezekiel chapter 47, we have this imagery of the temple being restored. We have this imagery of water coming out from the temple and bringing life. Let me read just a section of it for you. It says, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. The man who brought me back to the entrance, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, says Ezekiel. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around to the outside, to the outer gate facing the east. And the water was trickling down from the south side of the temple. Jumping to verse Six. Then he led me to the back, to the bank of a river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river, and he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, 
where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh, and swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eglame. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. And the vision that Ezekiel has goes on from there. But here in Jesus, in John 21, we see a fulfillment of this prophecy. Why? Because who is the temple? Jesus is the temple. And Jesus brings this abundant life, this water flowing from the temple to everything that he calls to and touches. So he calls to the disciples, and he tells them to fish, and they catch. And he restores them. He restores them, both as disciples, but finally, and this is the last point of the sermon, he restores them as individuals, and is redeemed. Later in this chapter, Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him, which is the undoing of Peter's denial, the three denial that Peter says in the courtyard. But look at Peter and the disciples present in today's reading, and look at the parallel to Luke 5. All these men, save John, the beloved, denied Jesus And if they didn't deny him with their voice, as Peter did, they denied him with their actions. They fled his trial. They fled his crucifixion. They hid, and they thought, truly thought, that he was dead, never to rise again. They've encountered Jesus already here in John, but this passage has a specific thing for them. It holds a particular significance to them as individuals. While they're apparently, he he sees them here, and they're back apparently to where they began, to where Jesus first called them, to where they first became his followers. What does Jesus do? He calls out to them again after their rejection. He calls out to them again after their denial and their cowardice and their fleeing. He breaks bread with them when they come to shore. He eats fish with them. He has breakfast with them. And the text says that they know exactly who he is. The reality, friends, is that I'm sure these disciples were grappling with the idea of their master having died and risen again. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? And yet he gives them this gift. And I don't think that there's any doubt in this passage, but I think what John is relating to us is that Jesus approaches them and approaches us individually as people, as persons who fail, even as his chosen 
Don't you think that the disciples would have had that gnawing thing in the back of their mind? They had heard Jesus say, remember in Luke chapter 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Do you remember that passage in Luke? Don't you think that would have been gnawing at the back of their minds? Well, I was ashamed of him. I rejected him. I fled him. But joy overcomes both in John and Peter and then the rest of them. While Jesus doesn't speak very much at all in this passage, what he says to them in his actions speaks volumes. He calls them again. He gives them a miracle. He feeds them. He breaks bread with them, recalling the Eucharist. This is for them a gift that the Old Testament calls an Ebenezer. Do you know what an Ebenezer is? Is it like a mulligan? <laughs> Good guess, but no. An Ebenezer. Well, yeah, it's a marking stone. Exactly, it's a marking stone. Do you see... What God is doing here in Jesus is giving them a marking stone, something for them to come back to and hang their hat on as to his reception and restoration of them. In Samuel, this happens. God has defeated the Philistines miraculously, right? And Israel comes back to God, breaks apart their idols, repents, turns to God. And Samuel sets up this pile of rocks, and it's called an Ebenezer. This experience is their Ebenezer. Every time they pass or reflect upon this experience, past the spot on the lake, they remember. They remember God's mercy and his love, despite their rejection. And you know... It's not just something that's for the apostles and the disciples. That's something that's for congregations, and it's something that's for you as individual believers to have Ebenezer's. It's central to us as our story. Think about it. What are the many ways that God has provided for you? Not just generally, but specifically. You had a specific need, and you didn't deserve squat. And God provided for you. Well, first and foremost, theologically, of course, that's the story of salvation. Right? Simplified. But second of all, it happens every day in our Christian lives, right? Maybe not every day, but often in our Christian lives. How many times are we at wit's end? Are we at the breaking point and all of a sudden God shows up and gives us a gift? I just want to relate one thing to you. Uh, from my experience, Leah and I were really praying about giving money to the Easter offering this year. Um, things are tight. We're having a baby. <laughs> so our budget's being stretched. The garage door broke. <laughs> and I had to take a chainsaw to it to get out. <laughs> Another story. But, <laughs> but we were really struggling with that. But we felt the Lord was calling us to give to that. 
So we wrote the check, put it in the plate. Lord, we don't have this, but here you have this. Leah got a call to play a funeral, which generally isn't good news, (laughs) but it is for an organist, right? And the person for whom she played the funeral blessed us by giving us three times the amount that the funeral would usually bring in to an organist. Think about that. Three times the amount, covering not just the Easter offering, but more. Does God always do it that way with money? No. But praise God, that's an Ebenezer in my life. And I bet if you think hard enough, you'll find that there's Ebenezers in your life too. It's important to recognize them. It's important to voice them. It's important to write them down. It's important to keep them dear to us so that when the times of trial come, we can look back at those and say, Lord, you've provided in the past. Praise you. You'll provide for me. Here as a congregation, we're going to start having testimonies during the service. Now, we're giving parameters as to how they're done, but we're going to have people start talking about how God's acted in their life. Because, friends, I hear it, but you guys don't always hear it. But it's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. So what are some practical things you can do with this passage? Well, record your Ebenezer's. Get a little tablet, or if you're, you know, digital, create a a file folder, and start listing them, just a sentence or two. I needed this, God provided this, praise God. You know, 3rd of March, 2019. Make sure that you voice them with your spouse, or with your friends, or with your family, particularly with your children. If you have children, Lord, I, I was at my wit's end. The Lord provided in this way for me. Praise God. Make it a part of who you are because, friends, it is who you are in Christ Jesus. We serve a God of abundance and life. Now, perhaps the next time we sing Come Thou Font of Every Blessing, this will make more sense to you. Let me just close with this. Here's a verse from Come Thou Font. Here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me, When a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. What's the first stanza of that? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hitherto, by thy grace, I've come. Amen.